Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this amazing episode of Star Pod Trek, we consider the Star Trek and science contents of Starlog magazine in issues 19 and 20, cover dated 1979. On this episode, Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discussed the Susan Sackett-penned Trek report, including the latest news about the widescreen motion picture. Lauren White reflects on the NASA spacesuit propulsion unit. Bob Bossler considers the Trek report, including more news about the motion picture. We'll also be discussing Leonard Nimoy's involvement in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, plus the connection between Mork and Mindy, convention reports, and more on this episode of Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Putin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of Starpod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app... Make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. The grandest of them all. Dragon Con, Labor Day weekend in Atlanta. Okay, Dragon Con is a series of conventions, essentially, with inside one convention. So let's talk about the Trek track. The, I say, the most awesome track in all of Dragon Con. Why do we love the Trek track so much? It's the track that focuses completely on Star Trek. And they have, they have their own room where there's fan discussion panels. And then they also have some of the uh, large ballrooms when they have one of the um, huge Star Trek guest stars or one of the stars. And so the panel just has everything you love about Star Trek. Any particular celebrities that you're looking forward to seeing at the convention this year? Well, William Shatner's going to be there. And, of course, he's he's been there before, but he's great to see. He's he's always a great guy to see on stage. And they've got some of the Discovery actor this, actors this time. Sonequa Martin-Green and Mary Wiseman and Noah Averbatch-Katz and Anthony Rapp. All of those are uh, first-time people at Dragon Con, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, no doubt about it. We will be conducting multiple panels, so check out the DragonCon app for more information. We will actually be involved in a fan film discussion panel, also a panel about Vulcan culture. And with the comic book track that's going to be in the America's Mart, I will be conducting, I will be moderating a panel with a variety of comic book artists, and some have worked on Star Trek comics. So looking forward to that. But ground zero for all Trek fandom at Dragon Con is going to be the lower level of the Hilton. That's where the Trek track is located. So we look forward to seeing many of our listeners Labor Day weekend. We will also be attending Halloween weekend just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, the Music City Multicon. 
October 29th through 31st. This is a convention that used to be limited to video games, but this year they're expanding beyond video games and doing things just about everything in pop culture. So we look forward to seeing our listeners there and being involved in that convention. Starlog Magazine, issue number 19, cover date February 1979. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Mike McMaster, 1953-1978. The Star Trek fan world is shocked and saddened by the untimely death of 25-year-old Mike McMaster. McMaster died in an accident at his home on September 6, 1978. He is best remembered by Trek fans for his replica of the Enterprise, the Romulan Bird of Prey, and the Klingon Cruiser. His final efforts were employed on a new project for Bantam Books, to be released sometime in 1979, and his revised edition of the Bridge Blueprints were just released. Mike McCaster will be sorely missed by all who appreciated his eye for research and accuracy, his lectures, humor, and unique skills. I think this is the first time I've ever seen a fan get a news item in Starlog magazine. He must have been someone that a lot of people had heard of back then. Well, we have his blueprints. What I think is amazing is that there was that... The late 70s were that mix of fan-produced items and official items, and there was a gray line within some of them because so many of the fan-produced items either rivaled or surpassed the official ones. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, It was a different world back then. The fans could produce more stuff and not worry about it, and other fans could consume it. Yes, and he's one of the early ones that created a bridge, a life-size bridge that even fooled some of the people that were associated with the show. That's how accurate it was. must have been awesome. Yeah, it would have been great to see. Trek Trots for Aussie Yawks. According to Australian Starlog correspondent Cam Ford, NBC's Saturday Night Live isn't the only TV show to parody the legendary Star Trek series. Okay, so this is a... Australian comedy show that produced their own parody of Star Trek, showing how truly international Star Trek fandom was by the 70s. The whole world loved it. Yeah, parody of Star Trek. Gee, has that been done before? <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, some, some of those are really fun to watch, though. And especially, you know, like the Saturday Night Live ones. I mean, they were pretty neat. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. We are formerly of the podcast known as 70s Trek, where we looked at all things related to Star Trek in the 1970s. And here we are today recording for StarPod Log, looking at Starlog issue 19 from February 1979. And we have a little bit of sad news, don't we? This is kind of sad. I know, yes. As we're recording this, it is the 27th of August, and we were just learning that the actor who defined the red shirts, right? Yes. His name was Eddie Paskey. He played ongoing Lieutenant Leslie in the original series. He has passed away at the age of 81. 
He yeah. outlived most red shirts. He outlived all of them. Yes. Remember how how young, right, Lieutenant Leslie was, Mr. Leslie? Yes. Like, hard to imagine him at age 81. Well, no. Lieutenant Leslie, you'll be missed. Yes, Godspeed. Godspeed. Hey, I wanted to uh, set the tone for what was happening back in um, February 1979, if you guys will indulge me and talk about the top five songs from that month. Yeah. So number five was I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. Do you remember that song, Kel? Yes. I, I think you used to dance that in your bedroom a little bit. Our bedroom? I do. And then number four was Fire by the Pointer Sisters. Do you remember who wrote that song and recorded it first? Elmer Fudd. Well, no, but this man was <laughs> born in the USA. He was. Bruce yes. Springsteen. The boss. The boss wrote that song. Number three, A Little More Love by Olivia Newton-John. Olivia. Oh. She never returned my calls. I wonder why. I can you, Do you blame her? Number two yeah. was YMCA by The Village People. Well, I'm doing Yes. Yeah, I'm doing it. So. And then number one, Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart. Absolutely, Rod. We always talk yes, always, always. Cool. Always. Cal, what did you think about this um, article-packed issue? I thought there was a lot of good stuff in this yeah, in this issue. Definitely. If you wanted to know about Buck Rogers, this was the one to read, right? Absolutely. The, the lovely and fetching Marin Jensen from Battlestar Galactica was interviewed in this this particular issue. I thought this was cool. They had an article about the body snatchers. Yes. With Leonard Nimoy. If if you're at home listening, that's my lovely little COVID puppy. His name is Baker, and he's upset that I'm not paying attention to him. So if you hear him cry, you'll just have to deal with that. So yeah, the body snatchers starring Leonard Nimoy. Yes. Um, remember that? That movie, The Lord of the Rings, the cartoon version. Right. That was right. in here. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Corman. Article about Great. him. B-movie director. Big time B-movie director. But boy, he, he made some memorable ones, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. I thought this was cool. There was a, an article about the, the jet pack that shuttle astronauts wore. You know, you, you saw it throughout the 80s and 90s. Right. As they would kind of fly untethered around the shuttle and go to satellites and things like that, you know. But it, in 1979, we hadn't really seen that yet. So it was kind of cool. To yeah, it was kind of cool. It's, yeah, sci-fi is now real. Oh, big time. Yeah, big time. And then there's a preview of Superman the movie. So it's really interesting, right, that, that readers are picking this up in February of 1979. Of course, this was written four or five months before that, possibly around September 78. Yes. They may have already seen Superman the movie at this point, but they're reading the preview article. It hey, took them a little longer to get the a little bit longer. issues out. A little bit longer. So we have to give them a break on that. Um, there's an article about the magic of special effects. And then, of course, the Star Trek report with yes. Susan Sackett. 
You know, and we've talked about the Star Trek report in uh, past um, episodes of Starpod Log, and and I don't know if we've ever said this, but Susan Sackett, she, when you look back at Star Trek, especially Star Trek in the 1970s, she was a player. She was Gene Roddenberry's longtime assistant. Started in the mid 70s, was with Gene all the way through uh, the when he passed away in 1991. Right. So I'd say that she witnessed a lot of Star Trek history during those years. Well, in Hollywood history too. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. She seemed to know what was going on on at least Paramount. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's legit that, that, you know, that she's writing these articles that they're, they really are a piece of history when you look back and, and she sort of tells us little snippets of things that were going on at that time. So it's, it's pretty significant really. Kelly, why don't you jump in here? I'm going to go quiet Baker for a sec. Sure. Well, well, so Susan starts the article and she's describing really what's going on daily during the production of the movie. And she starts by kind of describing, you know, at, at the end of a day's shooting, they watch dailies, which is basically shots of what they did during the day. Uh, and she is describing, and this caught me kind of, well, caught my funny bone. She describes Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as barely changing over time. Uh, now, it's been, what, 10 years since Solid the third ten years. season? Yes. Solid 10 years. I and think they changed a little. I think they changed a little. It, to me, it was noticeable. But that's just me. Um and then she also is describing and in, in, in this article and and other issues, I, I've seen a trend where she's describing Roddenberry and Bob Wise as, you know, being neck neck and or hand in hand in, in the whole production and and working like a well oiled machine, if you will. Right. Um and so she's describing how during these dailies uh, Roddenberry and Wise are, are you know, taking notes, pointing at different things and flaws that they see, like scratches on the film, or hey, this scene's a blurry in this one corner, or just basically comparing notes and things they need to fix. Yep, yep. Which take looks good, which doesn't, things like that. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. I also thought it was interesting too in this piece that that she's talking about the cast and crew at one point saying, "quote." They're not just another company making another movie. It's a family with some newly welcomed relatives. Right. So there are some new players in there like Stephen Collins and Persis Kambata, plus new people on the production side like Harold Livingston and John Poville. Those are new family members coming in. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, There's an interesting photo of a birthday celebration. Um, for Robert Wise, which Susan talks about. And, um, you know, she goes on to describe a big party, uh, Roddenberry and um, Poville, Harold Livingston, and publicist John Rothwell, as well as Robert Wise, all had birthdays um, in September-ish period. And so they were all celebrated on set. And so there's a nice picture of a group of people around Wise and a cake. and yeah. They're, they're yucking it up. I thought it was interesting. I don't know. I 
pick out these little things. There's a woman in the background, and she's higher than everybody else. She must be on yes. a chair or something. Right. And hanging out of her mouth is looks like a Virginia Slim, this right. long, thin cigarette. It's just not something you see a lot today. That's all. That's why it yeah. struck out or it stuck out to me. So Yeah. Well, in the picture, I don't see anybody else smoking either. No. Right. No, you don't. So I don't know who you are, ma'am, but you made history. Yes. At least here. At least. Yes. Between Kelly and I, you did. You got noticed. Uh, she goes on to say uh, that at the time she was talking about the, the production, that the motion picture was Paramount's largest movie that, that hey, they had produced in years, taking up five sound stages. And it actually, they added on sound stages after this. Um, and on one stage, stage eight, it was dedicated to the Enterprise's wreck deck. If you remember yeah. that, the scene with Stephen Collins and Ilea walking around. And then earlier in the movie, when the entire crew is on the wreck deck, as Kirk shows them what they're doing, that really, really was a big set that took up an entire sound stage. And incredible. Incredible. Can you imagine the work that had to have gone into that? Well, yeah, an entire soundstage. I Big mean, stuff. I get the, the one of the other ones was the cargo deck, and I get that. Um, but still, that's still a lot of space that they're tying up in Paramount's lot. Yeah, yes, exactly. And I thought it was interesting, too, that, you know, again, we, we guesstimate that this was written sometime around September 78. That wreck deck right. is still under uh, construction. It's not right. done yet. They're still building it. Yeah. So I'm guessing that was shot later on in production. I thought it was interesting, too. She was describing, you know, all the different sound stages and what they're used for. And we mentioned a couple. Um, but I didn't realize that they used the sound stages also for, like, just storage or for dressing rooms or, or makeup, you know, I thought there was always trailers or something that they went out and did that. So. Right. They, they talked about, that's right. They talked about like uh, Nimoy and a few other people use this soundstage for their costumes and makeup and things like that. So yeah, I, I didn't realize that either, but it was such a big production. They needed whatever space I, they could get. Exactly. I thought it was interesting too, that she talked about security and the fact that uh, wherever the movie was shooting that day, whatever soundstage it was, there were always two security guards there. Yes. And that getting onto that soundstage, getting into that particular studio uh, uh, stage was very difficult because everybody had to be um, cleared and yeah. then badged and then escorted. Escorted. Right. So it wasn't. Hey, I'm Bill Shatner coming in for my take. I'm guessing that he had to be checked at the door too, you know. Just like anybody else. Just like yeah. anybody else. In fact, she says, right, at one point she was asked to leave because they didn't know who she was yet. And the head of Paramount went in and the security guards asked him to leave too. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You know, my name's Michael Eisner. I run this place. What do you mean I have to leave? You don't know me? I sign your check. Look at me, Michael Eisner. Yeah, well, you know, everybody had to be escorted and cleared. Yes, yes. Um, they talked about some uh, VIP visitors. They, Susan did, 
the most uh, the most notable being the Northern California muscular dystrophy poster boy. His name was Tom Lee, and he was on the set in the fall of 1978. And there's a nice photo of uh, Jimmy Doohan, Stephen Collins, and DeForest Kelly with um, Tom as he's in a wheelchair, and it appears that they're pushing him around the set and spending some time with him. And I thought it was really nice yeah. that the, on that day that Tom was there, the cast and crew raised about $500 for muscular dystrophy, which at that time was, you know, a couple yeah. grand probably. Oh, well, yeah. And that was all and, out of out of their pockets. Right. Whatever they had that day. With them at that time. It's not yeah. like they're writing checks or here's my credit card. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I do but, like in that picture where there's – Jerry Lewis in the background, I need you and pointing the poster of Jerry Lewis. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, too, that whoever was was uh, cropping and cutting this picture out. And when I say cut, it was probably really scissors. Right. When they laid this out, decided to leave the Jerry Lewis poster (laughs) in there. Yeah, I like that. Yep, exactly. I thought that was pretty cool, too. Susan also talked about the formation of the Star Trek softball team. And the fact that like Shatner and Stephen Collins were planning on playing. But what really I thought was cute was they were hoping to play the Happy Days Happy team. Days team. <laughs> I, like I don't know if you remember, but there were like stories about the Happy Days softball team sort of ruling Hollywood at this time. Like yeah. they were good. Yeah. Yeah. And she, yes, exactly. She, uh, she ends, um, the Star Trek report for this issue saying Captain Kirk versus the Fonz. That's Hollywood. Any closing uh, comments, Cal, on this issue of, and uh, the Star Trek report here? I kind of missed the mailbag. There was no mailbag. No. But I guess there was a little bit more to talk about. I guess. Yes. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Ronberry, once said, It's a matter of fact. Life and death are probably just chapters in an infinite greater existence that we're all a part of. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. The Body Snatchers Return. Here is yet another science fiction film featuring life forms from space. But you will not cheer for these aliens. They are neither friendly, furry, nor harmless, and they've been here before. So this is yet another article that Starlog is featuring about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We see that there is this massive build-up for this movie. Well, it, it was a remake of an old movie, so the people who had heard of it were probably interested in seeing how how they would remake it. And by this time, finally... Fans have got to see Body Snatchers. The article even goes on to say that December was the hot month for science fiction fans because we got Superman, the movie, as well as Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And, of course, Leonard Nimoy was in it. And that's the big deal for us that are Star Trek fans. It's interesting when we look at Leonard's portrayal of the character in the movie, if you notice he's going to have this leather gauntlet on his hand, And when they asked Leonard about it, he said that he put it on there. It was his idea to put it on there because he wanted his character to have a distinctive feature that was unexplained. 
Yeah, that sounds really different. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, why would it be unexplained? I mean, because the audience is going to look at it and, and wonder. And I, and I guess that's the point, just to just to have something for people to question, to see how many people notice it. So let's think about where Leonard was in his creative career at this time, because we realized as looking at these Trek reports that it wasn't sure, was Leonard going to come back to Star Trek The Motion Picture? Well, he was involved. He was a fully working actor at this point because he was in, obviously, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But we look at the scope of his work from 1969 to 1979, and we see that, well, Leonard was not in the position that many of the others in the motion picture were in. Why was there some hesitancy on Leonard's part? Well, let's look at the scope of his work. So, so during those um, 10 years from 69 to 79, he did several TV shows and movies. Um, I mean, the, you know, Mission Impossible was one that a lot of people saw. And that was a main character there. He was, yes. And there was a TV movie called Baffled. He did Night Gallery, Columbo, and, well, of course, Star Trek the Animated Series. And, you know, a few other things that weren't as well known, but he did Catlow and and a TV movie called The Alpha Caper, uh, TV movie Rex Harrison Presents Stories of Love, and plus he did a lot of stage work too. He was in Fiddler on the Roof, he did Man in the Glass Booth, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Equus on Broadway, and Royal Shakespeare's, um, he did Sherlock Holmes. So and that was did. a big one for him. Yes, yes. He he gained quite a bit of notoriety and accolades for his portrayal of the master detective. And he also did that great series In Search Of that I yes, used to watch. Yes, yes. Plus writing his book, I Am Not Spock. That's right. <laughs> so he was active not only after the cancellation of Star Trek, but especially leading up to the late 70s. So... It's understandable that there was some hesitation on him going back to the motion picture. If he was to go back, it had to be on his terms. Yeah, because as a working actor, he, he didn't feel like he needed Star Trek because he, he was he was getting work. Mm-hmm. And in the motion picture, they, they really didn't have Spock until later in the movie. He was the last person to join the Enterprise because they really they didn't have him in the script at first. That's right. That's right, yeah. Wonderful to, to consider this amazing man's talent. Hello, friends. Uh, this is Lauren White, a.k.a. the Poetic Engineer. So the article I'm talking about today is called Free Flying in Space. And the thing that probably hit me first was that this article was in the 1970s, pre the space shuttle program in the 1980s. And to date myself just a bit in the way that folks probably don't like, I wasn't alive when this article was done. (laughs) Now I am currently working uh, for Jacobs Engineering, working on the Artemis program at NASA. So while I wasn't alive when this article was done, it does hit me very hard. Uh, To read about what they're talking about, uh, using spacesuits uh, for outside the shuttle travel, using radios for communication, trying to make advances there about how we do work outside of the shuttle, checking on the satellites, etc. 
And for me to be working at that now where that's the past, that's technology that we've left behind and come forward in, it's just very interesting to read about. So this particular article was talking about the manned maneuvering unit. And I did a little research on that. Uh, the MMU was used on three shuttle missions in 1984 to facilitate extravehicular work untethered outside of the shuttle. For example, retrieving the satellites. It was retired after the, uh, the Challenger incident on 28 January, uh, and was deemed to be too risky and was eventually replaced by the, uh, simplified aid for Eva Rescue, the safer. It was actually made and retired, uh, before I had the opportunity, uh, to even be born or <laughs> to work on this. And, and the Challenger mission is actually fairly special to me because my mother tells me all the time when she was pregnant with me that she remembers it so vividly because she was on bed rest with HIVs in her arm because I was giving her such a hard time and she actually watched it live on television uh, when that happened. And to now be working uh, with NASA, I have met people that we're on site that day. We're at the launch control center on 28 January and have heard their feelings about it and didn't realize that even though I knew it was January, didn't even pay attention to the fact that it was the 28th, which exactly is four days before I was born on the 28th of May. Bit of a side note, but just explaining, you know, what that history means to me. And I do hear very much about the shuttle program from a lot of the folks that had the opportunity to work at uh, at that time and tell me, this is what we used to do on shuttle. This is what happened with shuttle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I've gotten to learn a lot about the shuttle days and the pre-shuttle days uh, in my time at Jacobs in the last seven months. So another thing that was interesting to me about the manned maneuvering unit is that there was a parenthetical comment in the article that said, assuming females will use them too. How far have we come, right? That it wasn't even really a thought that a woman would be an astronaut or be on a manned mission or rather a space mission. And now having working working on the Artemis program that is meant to send us back to the moon. And we are working to send the first female to the moon. I have the privilege to be a part of that. And being a female black engineer working at this time, you know, it's been a struggle to break through that glass ceiling, to have women, women get into these opportunities and to now be a part of that advance in our society, that moment in our history is amazing. And of course, I have to relate this back to Star Trek, right? As I always do, as my StarPod log friends do, uh, we have been talking a lot about Nichelle Nichols and how much she invested in getting women and minorities into STEM and to working at NASA. And there is a video called Women in Motion where she promotes 
women working at NASA. So if you have not had the opportunity to watch that, I recommend it. NASA has been promoting it. And as I can personally say, having met her and spent a couple days with her, Nichelle Nichols is completely awesome. And so not a lot of folks know that she was instrumental in making sure that women came into the NASA program and therefore came into STEM and personally to me into engineering. One of the things that the MMU was meant to do was to allow the astronauts to complete their work untethered to the shuttle. So they had a uh, propulsion system that they manipulated uh, with their fingertips with uh, uh, mechanisms that could be operated by the fingers. So when I read that, of course, what did I think about Star Trek, the motion picture, when Spock just abandons all sanity and says, I'm going to go into the V'ger cloud and has this little system that propels him into the cloud so he could go look at everything. As soon as I read that, I was like, we've done this. We've done this. We've, we've, we've applied this into Star Trek. And it's one of the things that I and many of us love about Star Trek is this is where we try to apply the uh, technology that we wanted to get to whether it was what we had at the time or where we've come to now. One of the things that I love the most about doing events with my Star Trek chapter in Orlando is when we can meet the kids, show them a communicator and say, hey, this was our first cell phone, or tell them about a turbo lift, which I can now show them with our, our pigs in space display. Say, this is where we got elevators and whatnot from. And to see their faces you know, whether they're young or they're high school or they're college age, and to have them understand just where they came from and see the joy and how cool it is and see them think, hey, I want to do this. I want to be a part of this technology, this engineering, this space program, be an astronaut, make these advances for us is, is beautiful. It means so much to me especially being in this career the way that I am and having to fight for it the way that I've had to do. Another thing that I thought about, because pop culture, is when they were talking about antenna on the ground level and, and being to be being able to work at that, you know, repositioning our satellites, etc. Did anybody else think of Goldeneye and Pierce Brosnan and Sean Bean falling down this giant antenna that was underwater like it was no big deal. I thought about that. <laughs> so reading this article from 40 years ago and thinking about where we are now and what we see in science fiction, whether it's Star Trek or James Bond or something else that is no big deal to us. Just it's like, hey, whatever, that's just what we do. I want people to understand the gravity of that. You know, a lot of what I hear at work is we worked in the shuttle program and we just had a few computers and calculators and we launched shuttles. We launched people into space. We have so much more than that now. Think on that. Think about how limited we were in the past and what we were able to accomplish. And now we watch it in movies that are science fiction, whether they are past or present day or potentially in the future. And, and we don't really think anything of it. One of my favorite movies is Interstellar. I love Christopher Nolan and I love the way that he does this cross section of science fiction 
and human psyche, human nature. And in that movie, we are exploring the fifth dimension. We have to suspend belief for a moment to believe that we can use space travel into places that we didn't think that we could go to and meet beings that we didn't think that we could meet in order to save humanity. So for 40 years ago, we may have read this article and been like, eh, you know, are we really going to get there? Are we really going to accomplish that technology? Are we really going to get past this? Now we're reading it and it's like, you know, you guys didn't know. But in my mind, I'm like, can we get there? Can we get to where that story takes us? And is it really so unrealistic given what we've seen? That's, that's something that I would love for everybody to take in. That's something that I take into my heart. Also realizing that people are people. We're not going to change and we have to keep humanity in mind as we do it. These are realistic issues. They were, uh, are, Talking about realistic issues in Interstellar, the world being destroyed, famine, etc. And looking at how space travel and and these technology advances could probably, possibly help us get through that. And so I just want everybody to keep that in mind as they read these past articles, read these current articles. Where can we go? When we're free flying in space, where can we go? It's so much farther than we thought. In the last month, we have seen billionaires going into space in oddly shaped vehicles, mind you. <laughs> but people that that we weren't thinking about would ever do that. We weren't thinking out Bezos, uh, the, the mind behind Amazon, which several years ago to anybody was like, eh, you know, and now we have Prime and it's the only thing that we use and he's gotten to go to space, right? So how much more possible is that for the average human to go and do that? So the plan for the MMU was to be a navigation system. And again, I just, I think about Spock and trying to navigate to V'ger before they decided to slingshot the Enterprise into there, which is also an analogy that I use at work when I talk about not screwing up a program that we're working on. All in all, it just, it means so much. And I love talking about NASA and talking about history. One of the things that my Star Trek group was able to learn about when we volunteered at the Orlando Science Center was some of the history of NASA creations. They had a trivia set that we have used about, hey, was this something NASA created, NASA used, or NASA has nothing to do with? We go from anything to batteries to technologies to diapers, and it's very fascinating to learn how people react when you mention NASA using diapers and water filters because sometimes desperate needs call for desperate measures and when you need something to drink well there's only one yellow liquid that you have so reading this article it was just very it was very poignant to me because it really brought to home where our past was what we've been working on and how important what i am doing is in the present and how that will flow 
into what people following me will do in the future, whether that is just engineers in general or a woman or a minority that I can ex- ex- that I can inspire to get into STEM. And my take on this article is love the technology, appreciate it, take it for the value that it has. It's, it's beautiful to see what we have been able to do, but also think about what your place can be in that. We can all have a place in that, taking our history, bringing it to the present, bringing it to the future, bringing it to the final frontier, and doing the things that we never thought that we could do, but that we always embraced in our science fiction, in our pop culture, in our minds, in our fantasies. And I hope you will do that. All right, let's talk about some future conventions as listed in Starlog magazine. A future as in the future of when this publication was produced. In fact, there was going to be a Star Trek convention called Star Trek Space Expo, February 17th through 19th, 1979, in New York, New York. Stag Empathy Midicon. Leeds, England, March 31st through April 1st. There were more Star Trek conventions back then than there are now. It, yeah, it would have been so neat to, to have been able to go to those back then if I only had parents that would have taken me. Oh, absolutely. I, we, we grew up in the era that the, our parents did not understand our love of Trek. Now it's a whole different world. We have multiple generations bringing up their kids properly. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we were the renegades. <laughs> Hey, talking about conventions, let's talk about the past convention that we just came back from, the convention formerly known as Star Trek Las Vegas. It is now called 55-Year Mission because they no longer have the Star Trek license. And so, yeah, we, we, we went there in Las Vegas, and it was a, it was a great con. It, it was smaller this year because of COVID. A lot of, uh, a lot of the fans didn't go, and a lot of the stars didn't go to this one either. But they still had a great turnout of stars. Oh, totally. Yeah, we enjoyed the convention. It's a creation convention. So creation conventions are very, very focused on autographs and photographs, very much about the celebrities. What were some of the favorite panels that you attended that were given by the stars. I, I liked seeing the Discovery panel. They, they had uh, Blue Del Barrio and Mary Wiseman and her husband, Noah Averbatch Katz. I mean, a lot of great people there, and it was just a great discussion. And David Ajala was there, too. A lot of these people I was seeing for the first time, and they, they seemed happy to be there. And They were, they were really um, excited and, and great with the fans. And of course, and, and other people too, like, uh, Kelsey Grammer was there. You know, he just had one small spart- part on Star Trek, and he's really known for, for Frasier and other things besides Star but Trek. But he's a fan. But, yeah, and he was, um, and he was really a nice guy too. Oh, he's great. He doesn't wear a mask or anything. He'll hug you. I mean, he's just, <laughs> he's like, yep, this is it. Let's, let's enjoy it while we can. And like Ben Vereen was there, mm-hmm. another person who had one small part on Star Trek, but he's so well known for for so many other things. And I mean, he was a wonderful person too. And and yes, and he was always a Star Trek fan. And let's talk about how he got involved in Trek. He he said that um it it was actually Lavar Burton that that asked him to to play D- 
to play his father because, I, I mean, LeVar knew that, that Ben Vereen was a fan, and it was an episode that LeVar was directing, and he had a, you know, so this part was open, and so he he asked uh, Ben Vereen to, to do it, and it was, and yeah, Ben, actually, it came in a letter. Ben Vereen said it was it was some day where he was having a really bad day, but then he got this letter that said, uh, we would like you to play Jordy LaForge's father, <laughs> and he said, you know, it just made his day. So awesome, isn't it? Yes, it was awesome. It was just, and it's so cool. And we were happy to see him. And I remember seeing a clip too, because they filmed it, you know, like like when he filmed that scene. But they also so him showed him talking after he filmed it. And he said, "I came here for this. I'm so happy to be here." That's so cool. Talking about the Discovery panel, without a doubt, with regards to celebrities, the highlight for me was the expressions from Kenneth Mitchell. Yes, it's. You know, it's sad that he, he's got ALS now, but he still does cons. And, and he had to talk through um, an electronic computer like um, like Stephen Hawking did, really. But And Kenneth Mitchell said he, he kind of, he controlled it with his eyes somehow. But and it was but it was really neat. And, and yes, what he, what he spoke, and it was just really heartwarming. heartwarming. And he, he is such a super nice guy. Mm-hmm. He and Mary Chifo had wonderful banter together. He, he he actually has such a sense of humor. We got to meet them afterwards, and Kenneth was actually, instead of signing autographs, he had a stamp of his autograph, and a family member would stamp a picture for you. I, I mean, you want to talk about something that was just tugged at your heartstrings. To see his family there to support him, the other actors. I think it was his daughter, wasn't it? Daughter and son, yeah. He had them rotating around. I just, it was, that was one of the highlights for me with regards to seeing celebrities and meeting them. Another highlight was hanging around with Dr. Migo, Paul Clark, at the Migo table. He's a nice guy, too. And, of course, we, we've seen him before at cons, and... and he he's always been nice and and it's great to see him and he he knows so much about Star Trek. It's really great to talk to. <laughs> exactly. And it was great to see how many Star Trek dolls that people were buying that were selling out. So the Riker sold out at the convention, the 14-inch Gorn sold out at the convention. People loved the fact that Migo is back. Yeah, Migo was so much fun and they were so huge in the 80s or in the 70s. So it's great now to you know, it's sort of it's a nostalgic thing for us, but it, but they're all they've also got some new dolls out from the uh, you know from next gen and and later on, and they're, and it's great to see them, and they're fun to to look at. And I was impressed with the fan club tables as well, like the USS Windrunner, which was a group out of Las Vegas. Yeah, they had their setup with the uh, with the bridge set. It was really neat, and they were letting people take pictures. And I love the fact that they're very involved in community efforts. Like one of their efforts is try to pick up five pieces of trash every day. If everyone tries to do that, we can make our communities cleaner. I think that's just such a Star Trek attitude, isn't it? Yes, it's it's great that they do that. And, it, you know, it's something that everyone can do. And it's just, it, it was such a great idea. And I'm so glad that they're doing it. And another highlight was meeting astronaut Commander Mario Runco. He's a Star Trek fan and an astronaut. And he's a talker, too. He he did a panel, but then we, we also talked to him later, and he, he can just go on and on. He's just... He joined us for dinner, which was a treat. Yes, Just yes. stopped by and asked to join us. We're like, absolutely. I love how they combined real-world science with Star Trek. 
because I think Star Trek is really the only science fiction series that inspires people to reach out for other things, which is like our regular contributor, Lauren White. This this is what Star Trek does. Star Trek makes us better people. A lot of people were inspired by it. And, yeah, to to get into science, to get into engineering or medic, medicine, yes, it's just because Star Trek is such a wonderful show that has these characters that are so great and they're so good in their fields. And and they're making these wondrous contributions. So yes, it's all great. And also at the con, you got to speak with um with Rod Roddenberry multiple times. He was able to mingle with the fans and just ask me how I felt about different things. I was <laughs> I told him I said, if you really want to know how I feel, I am not going to pull punches. I will tell you how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually listened to you and he did. and said some things. He had some yeah. good input too. He did. He did. Very down-to-earth, nice guy. The, the thing that I had to say to him was, I'm I'm grateful for what your parents put together. It changed my life. And he sees yeah, it. Yeah. That's what he said. He said he's finally seeing it. He didn't get it years ago, but he gets it now. And that's the important thing. Yeah. He So he does a lot of cons now and mingles with the fans. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's another great thing. And and uh, Larry Nemechek was there. And, of course, you know, Dr. Trek. Mm-hmm. Did a few panels, and he's a great speaker, too, and he's always great to talk to. Yes, Alec Peters from Axonar. Wow, people were buying patches and pins like crazy. If you're a patch collector, that's that's the place to go. Yeah, he had his, his table there in the vendor's room, and also he did a panel. And, of course, he, he was pretty good. And, and he... J.G. Hertzler jumped on stage unannounced. Right. J.G. Hertzler was there and wasn't even a planned guest at the con. But he he showed up and supported Axonar. And we were talking in the dealer's room because he was at our wedding. And he goes, you're still together. And I said, yes. we." <laughs> he said, with all those Klingons around you. I said, I know. It was good. Because we had – he was at the end of the, the Klingon honor guard. He gave me a high five when I walked. Remember when we walked yes. underneath the, the batlets. So, again, J.G. Hertzler loves Trek. He's a fan. It's one of the few types of properties that many of the people involved either were fans or became fans through their association with Trek. Yeah, and it, and it's great how they like they'll walk around the cons and mingle with the fans. It's it's something we like to see. I mean, it's you, you know it's because even the fans we have we all have this own sort of brotherhood of our own. We have our own fan groups. I mean, we all feel like family when we're there. And it's great when these stars are part of our family, too. And what about that song that Dominic Keating sang to you? <laughs> so, yeah, that the song he wrote about... Jolene Blaylock? <laughs> yeah, yes. I've got tits and ass. <laughs> it was about the cancellation of the show. So he t- went through different characters. But... Um, Dominic Keating and Connor Trenier, you could tell they're pals in real life. Well, yeah, they always do cons together. That's right. And yeah. so they and they were in the vendors' room signing autographs, and of course, you know, so sitting next to each other and just they're cutting up the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of Enterprise, because we love the TV show Enterprise, and one of my favorite characters is Travis Mayweather, but Anthony Montgomery, the actor that plays him, he's another one. He is hysterical in real life, and. Because this is no longer an official Star Trek convention, I say they could do some fun stuff. Fun stuff they couldn't do beforehand, such as have a viewing of one of the greatest Star Trek movies ever produced. 
Galaxy Quest. And he was moderating during it. In fact, he was interrupting the movie to tell us how true to life Galaxy Quest is. Oh, he was great. (laughs) (laughs) And mostly talking about the uh, the guy in Galaxy Quest, um, the young uh, pilot, Laredo. And it it was so funny how much he, he was like Mayweather, even though this movie came out before Enterprise. He said that he used this as a model of how not to act to fans because fans would ask him stupid questions sometimes, and he didn't want to just jump out at them. So he would kindly tell them that it's just a TV show. It's not for real. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, art does imitate life. And without a doubt, the best part about any convention that we go to is seeing friends that we haven't seen in a while. This time there were international fans, but we did get to see so many people, especially those that we normally see at Starbase Indy or some that are on the West Coast that we don't see too often. Right. We, we saw a lot of people there That's that, what cons that are we about. Know. And also meeting so many of our listeners at the Las Vegas convention was fun to get to see them in real life and also new ones. I mean, I met a new friend, Eli. This guy was awesome. He's one of those people that's saying, like, where were you my whole life? It's amazing at Star Trek conventions when you can meet up with kindred spirits, people who really get what we do. It's always a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, meeting people, just the mystery and the excitement of it. Yeah. Is meeting up with friends that we can only see once a year, and then we can talk about all the goofy things that we do, because that's what we do as Star Trek fans. Captain's Log, Stardate 5123-1. Using the Star Trek Command communications console, Scott and Jim try to contact Steve. Will they succeed? Let's contact Steve. Check. Ready. Command Communications Console with telescreen and warp drive sound. New from Miko. Starlog Magazine, issue number 20, cover date March 1979. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Win a place on the space shuttle. Got an out-of-this-world experiment you want to do? Starlog and future have reserved a place on the space shuttle, and we're giving it away to the person or group who comes up with the best idea for how to use it. Okay, how crazy is that? Starlog Magazine, this this is valued at $10,000, a space on the space shuttle. Wow. Well, they're just saying they're ta- they'll take ideas. Yeah, so it's like a contest in order to get on the space shuttle. I know that we're going to find out in subsequent issues how this came to be or if it came to be because we know that the space shuttle program really didn't kick into high gear until a few years later. Hi, this is Randy Landers from Potemkin Pictures. Look for us on YouTube at Potemkin1711 to watch our Star Trek fan productions. 
In the meantime, keep listening to StarPod Trek for more exciting news from the final frontier. Hi, my name is Bob Vossler, and I'm doing the Star Trek report for this edition. And I have to say, I'm really feeling nostalgic in looking back to an article concerning January 26th, 1979, and the last filming day of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I'm a longtime Star Trek fan. I live in New Jersey in the United States, and my association with fandom has also been a very long one, having joined Starfleet, the International Star Trek Fan Association, in 1982. Having been a fan for a very long time before that, uh, the uh, situation that brought me into uh, meeting other fans was seeing Leonard Nimoy. This was after Star Trek The Motion Picture, but before filming even began on Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. And uh, I met up with a fellow fan by the name of Jason Genser uh, on the autograph line to get his uh, signature. <laughs> and uh, we got to talking about Star Trek novels and... Um, the idea of doing a fanzine, and we exchanged information, and that's pretty much where it went until about uh, a year or so later after uh, The Wrath of Khan came out uh, for a few weeks, and in July of 1982, I was contacted and asked if I would become a third member of his budding chapter. So from there, uh, with the idea that I would get involved with a fanzine project, which I don't, which only materialized uh, about a year later. Uh, I joined Starfleet and uh, have been a member ever since and have headed a chapter of my own for now 33 years, which is hard to believe. Um, I've really enjoyed that experience and meeting so many different Fans, even meeting my wife through <laughs> fandom, uh, and also conducting a lot of uh, interviews with Star Trek actors, production people, and writers. So, um, seeing Susan Sackett, who I don't believe I've actually ever spoken to her, but seeing her name on this Star Trek report and looking back at old Starlog magazine articles, uh, many of which I have or uh, did have, not quite sure. I'll have to check my attic and see how many Star Log magazines I, I might still have. But it certainly brings back memories. And uh, looking at the article concerning uh, the final wrap of Star Trek The Motion Picture and uh, seeing some of the remarks made, uh, including Persis... Kambatra, Kambata, uh, never did know how to pronounce that, uh, and her plans to spend the next several months growing back her shiny black hair, um, and that there aren't too many parts for Deltons in Hollywood was certainly amusing. Um, Persis, Persis was just a beautiful actress. Um, I don't really know how much more she did after Star Trek The Motion Picture, I know she did some other projects. I think she did a uh, sword and sorcery movie, but I could be wrong about that. And, of course, I do know that she did the very embarrassing uh, Megaforce with uh, Barry Bostwick. 
am sad that she's not with us now. I have a great fondness for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Many people may not appreciate it, but it was, for me, the film that brought everyone back. And I always felt that just getting the crew back, I didn't care if they just stared out the view screen and looked into space as long as they were back. And, of course, some people have said, well, that's exactly what happened in Star Trek The Motion Picture, but... As we know, there was a little bit more to it than that. Uh, it may not have been the gripping personal story that we ended up seeing in Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, but uh, I think it was good for the first effort, and uh, maybe a little overblown with its budget, maybe a little too ambitious, and it maybe it was the victim of its own uh, epic scope that perhaps uh, a more personal story a toned-down script and, and maybe a little less gravitas would have been better for the first uh, motion picture. Um, everything that made The Wrath of Khan a success uh, was absent from Star Trek The Motion Picture, and yet Star Trek The Motion Picture just holds a very special place in my heart. I still recall going to see it uh, in the theater. I was supposed to see it with a friend of mine, but uh, at the last minute he couldn't make it. But there was no way I was going to miss it on premiere day. So I made it to a movie theater, picked up the program guide. Back in those days, you could buy that right at the, at the theater. I bought a Kirk and Spock button that I proudly wore on whatever shirt I was wearing at the time, probably a Star Trek shirt. And uh, went and found my found a seat. Uh, we didn't have assigned seating at, in theaters at that time, uh, and just was in awe of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. I didn't care how long the Enterprise it took to see the entire entirety of the newly produced uh, Enterprise, um, and I came away thoroughly enjoying the film and already had thoughts of what where the new new uh series would go what would happen in the next film um didn't dawn on me at all that anyone wouldn't appreciate uh star trek the motion picture and that we wouldn't immediately have plans to see you know a a, a sequel you know i know it wasn't star wars i didn't want it to be star wars star trek is totally different uh, it's more um thought-provoking, um, and it's not as simple as good versus evil, which is Star Wars's thing, which is fine. I, I love Star Wars in a totally different way, but Star Trek is what I appreciate most. In reading this article, it was so nice to see that there was this big rap party afterwards that brought the cast together, uh, and, and one can only imagine what that must have been like because I think that uh, that it was as nostalgic for them as it was for fans. That uh, up to that point, even William Shatner was having some tough times with his career, and that this was just something that came back to, to remind themselves of a different time in their own lives, um, only about a little over 10 years prior. I, I think they were probably very pleased, you know, with with getting a paycheck and also just coming together again. Also reading this article, while the principal photography had been done, 
it also mentions that filming on Star Trek The Motion Picture wasn't completed, that there were several scenes still to be done uh, without uh, the regular cast in post-production, and that construction on Stage 12 uh, required shooting scenes of a 23rd century San Francisco, the tram station, which, you know, was just breathtaking to watch, and that uh, there was filming of the famous Klingon sequences where we saw Mark Leonard and could barely recognize him, having played a Romulan and a Vulcan and now a Klingon, but uh, I, I didn't recognize him at the time. I'd heard that Mark Leonard was in the film, but, uh, you know, it was such heavy makeup and... I don't think any of us were prepared to see new Klingons that looked totally unlike what we had seen in the TV series. Of course, there was the sound editing, uh, the adding of special effects, sound effects, and, of course, Jerry Goldsmith's uh, beautiful musical score to the movie to be added. And I recall just how excited we all were in knowing that Star Trek the motion picture was headed in its way and not truly knowing what the script was all about. Uh, having an idea, knowing there was new characters, but uh, and certainly some interesting new costumes. Now, I still recall, even though it was 1981, most likely, um that uh, Leonard Nimoy had commented about his feeling about Star Trek The Motion Picture and uh, mentioned the costumes uh, and feeling that the set and the costumes were just not what he felt they should be, that, that it felt too 2001 uh, Space Odyssey-like, that it was too uh, uh, stoic um, to, you know, that it lacked a little vibrance and, you know, emotion. Um, although he didn't use those words, but, you know, coming from Leonard Nimoy, um, and his famous character of Mr. Spock to talk about the lack of emotion, um, was interesting, but I think as fans, we all knew what he meant as we sat there at, uh, the college auditorium that I, attended and uh, for the first time saw my first Star Trek celebrity because I had not gone to a Star Trek convention prior to, you know, uh, before that. I didn't get to do that until much later, um, maybe 19, later 82, maybe 83. Um, but um, I was a late bloomer when it came to conventions, but certainly a, a fan for a long time. But it was interesting to hear Leonard Nimoy's perspective on his disappointment about certain aspects of Star Trek, the motion picture. And I think we agreed that the, the film, while wonderful in bringing the crew back and setting up the potential for, for new series, and, um, and also providing us some nice merchandise, uh, there was just about everything you could get from Star Trek, the motion picture. There were dolls, there were games, there were 
a small handheld game that I remember having, Star Trek Phaser Strike. Um, there were the Mego action figures. Um, there probably, I believe there were pajamas, which would be appropriate given the type of costumes they have, but I was a little too old for, for Star Trek pajamas. But, um, you know, it, it did bring Star Trek back into the, you know, into a franchise, regardless of the fact that the film uh, was not everything that fans nor certainly producers wanted. Um, that really didn't come along until Star Trek II. But I don't think we could have had Star Trek II without seeing the mistakes done with Star Trek, the motion picture. And TMP also had the problems of not uh, of being conceived by maybe too many cooks in the kitchen. Uh, you know, originally it was supposed to be part of phase, you know, phase two, phase one, uh, phase two, uh, the, the TV series, with the idea that Spock wasn't coming back. And there were also film shots of uh, Persis, uh, in the old type uniforms, and uh, I think if they had kept something a little closer to the old style uniforms, and maybe a little less uh, white walls around the ship, making a little less, uh, you know, similar to 2009's uh, Star Trek, uh, which looked like the interior of a Radio Shack. Um, I see where Leonard Nimoy was, was going with his criticism on that, but it also did bring forward the kind of look that Gene Roddenberry had always wanted to have for Star Trek, but certainly just didn't have the budget for. And I think we were also taken aback by that because it, it looked way more fancy than we thought. And I think we appreciated things like, as was shown in this uh, Star Trek report article, the diagnostic uh, tables, which uh, certainly put the ones we saw in the TV series to shame. You know, I think, I think we enjoyed seeing some of that and it was a way for Star Trek to kind of keep up with what was now the sci-fi norm after seeing the visual spectacle of, of Star Wars. Given that Star Trek is enjoying its 55th year this year, I think Star Trek The Motion Picture marks probably the biggest um, jump in its, uh, in its history because it brought us to motion pictures. It reinvigorated the uh, franchise... Uh, in the way that fans had hoped for, for a long time. Uh, the Star Trek Lives campaign. We were always feeling disappointed, gypped over the fact that the five-year mission wasn't a five-year mission. And the closest we got was two seasons of an animated series, which was very well done by Filmation and had some wonderful writing to it even with only half-hour installments. But it wasn't a live production. It wasn't quite what, what we, as fans, wanted to see. Star Trek The Motion Picture brought it back. 
and it wasn't just on television, it was on the big screen. And for the first time, we got to see some really spectacular visuals that we couldn't even have dreamed about when those of us who were watching it when it originally ran, or even more so uh, in syndication, when it was on our local channel. Next on Channel 11, Star Trek. Every night at 6 o'clock, where fans like myself would watch it over and over and over again, um, to the point where we knew the dialogue by heart, the titles of the episodes. So, in its 55th anniversary, Star Trek The Motion Picture, I believe, is an important milestone in bringing the, the franchise back and putting it in a new setting, that being the big screen. And we would eventually get you know, more sequels, and we would eventually get Star Trek The Next Generation on TV, but uh, in a syndicated format, syndicated television, and then we would get it in a new network, UPN, and then we, and now we get it in uh, live streaming, you know, or streaming, I should say. And uh, so Star Trek itself has evolved with technology in the way it's presented and the way it's written, and certainly the way it's been produced. I don't think any science fiction franchise can say that it had as interesting a history as what we've been seeing and continue to see with Star Trek. So going back to this Star Trek report in this issue of Starlog, one of my favorite magazines, was a wonderful experience, and I look forward to reading further articles and getting that sense of nostalgia and that warm feeling of what it was like back then. Mego presents the Star Trek Universe's new line of 14-inch action figures. Captain James T. Kirk, Earthman. 14-inch Mego figures. Commander Spock, Vulcan Science Officer. 14-inch Mego figures. The Gorn, a feared enemy of the Federation. 14-inch Mego figures. 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. Wild about Mork. It's not easy playing second fiddle to an alien zany. Just ask Pam Dauber, who puts up with wild Morkisms both on stage and off. This is an article about Pam Dauber, co-star of Mork and Mindy. Now we know this was a spinoff of Happy Days. Yes. Did you end up watching Mork on Happy Days when you were a kid? Yeah, I did. Oh, totally. And we know there is a Star Trek connection between Happy Days... You got to figure Opie Cunningham, his brother Clint Howard. Okay. Right. Yeah, but but also William Shatner was on Mork and Mindy one time. That's right. That's right. Later on, later on. Yeah, in, in, he in was. The yeah, later. The article talks about Mork and Mindy is the highest rated show to debut in the 1978-1979 season. It has never fallen out of Nielsen top ten, and its success shows no signs of flagging. 
Now, I knew it was popular at the time. I didn't realize it was that popular. Yeah, it, it was when it first came on. I mean, I can see it just because because I never missed an episode, and it was so funny. It was so outrageous. And Pam in this article says the way she makes it work is by just letting Robin do his thing. <laughs> yeah, I think he had lived a lot. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and this was, you know, it was his breakout show. I mean, you know, on Happy Days he was an unknown, and then and then he got his own show, Mork and Mindy, and then later on uh, moving on to movies. Yeah, he he was just such a wonderful talent. Now, when I was watching the show as a kid, I never noticed the connections with Mork and Mindy and Star Trek. Just Mork's outfit itself. The the space outfit, the, the red space one. The spacesuit, yes. Yeah. The red one, that was in Star Trek, the original series. It's from the Savage Curtain, worn by Colonel Green. They they just, well, they added a little bit to it for Mork, but, but they said it, it's actually the same suit, though. It is, yeah, not modeled after it. It is the same suit. Yes, they kept, <laughs> like, they kept it for 10 years. I couldn't believe <laughs> that. Like, it's just been hanging up, like, wait a second, you mean this piece of Star Trek history is just hanging up in a closet with everything else? And just pick it up, put it on. Yeah, that, and so it, it's like they were just waiting, <laughs> like waiting uh, to find something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of suits that were reused in Star Trek for Mork and Mindy, another early appearance. The red suit that Spock was using, that yeah, the decontamination suit, it's like a reddish-orange. That was used in an episode, and they took the top of the spacesuit from the Tholian web and... Created a Halloween costume out of it. Conrad Janis, who was... Mindy's father. Exactly. Wore that for Halloween. Yeah, it was funny. Now, now as a child, I didn't recognize it. But, I mean, but yeah, why would they even do that, like taking two different suits? Because he could have just worn the whole suit from the Tholian web. But no, they just had to have the helmet from the Tholian web. And then the other part of the suit from, uh, from the Naked Time. And combine them. I mean, how random is that? I mean, it's like, um, yeah, let's just go into the the Star Trek um, treasure chest. Like they they must have put them all in. All the costumes were in a hope chest or something, and just pull them out. Exactly. We'll we'll wear this. We'll find a a time when we can wear this and this. Yeah. And since they mentioned Morkisms, you know all this stuff. Um, Nanu Nanu. Oh, of course, the Vulcan salute. Oh yes, the Vulcan salute sideways though. Which they kind of turned into a handshake yeah, exactly. on Mork and Mindy. Yeah. 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 But but other things he said, I feel like a nimnal and Shazbot, all of those <laughs> things. <laughs> and, and my brother back then could always do a great impression of Mork. He did a, he did a lot of stuff with Mork. I mean, because my brother was funny too, and he could do all those impressions. It I was had pretty rainbow. Neat. I had rainbow suspenders. Oh yes. Those rainbow suspenders were were pretty cool too, even though they were dorky. But it's like, but she wanted them because Mork had them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I mean, can you imagine me going to school, Starlog magazine, talking about Star Trek, having Star Trek model kits with rainbow suspenders? You actually wore the suspenders to school. Yes, I did. Did, did the other kids know it was Mork? Or Everyone what? did. Oh, okay. Oh, like like I said, I knew it was a popular show. I didn't realize it was the number one debut show. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Because it's, it was all everyone liked Mork. Adults liked them, kids liked them. Yes, yeah. That that was the big thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, and and I see the connections there even more so now looking back at it. All right, we're going to close up this episode with 
taking a look at one of the classified ads in the back of Starlog, Leonard Nimoy. As you never heard him before, hear Spock's long, all-new Trek adventures. Listen to TV's most logical characters sing some of Broadway's most beautiful tunes. This rare, out-of-print, two-record album is no longer available in stores. Special for Starlog readers, only $7.50 plus 75 cents postage. Two records at Leonard Nimoy. Sound good? Oh, I would have loved to have had it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu Nanu.